Uh, Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're with us here today. And as I just mentioned, we are going through what's called the story. And again, the visitors, be sure to get your coupon and go out there and get a free copy of this because this is the perfect time to join us on this study because we're just pivoting from the Old Testament to the New Testament, hence the Christmas in June. We're starting at the beginning of the New Testament, and that's why we're doing all the Christmas music with the birth of Jesus. So this is an absolutely perfect time. You don't feel like you've missed, you know, any, you've missed the, well, anything, the Old Testament, but you know, you feel like this is a great time to jump in uh, with the New Testament and to join us uh, here today. Now, next week, we're going to take another break from it, and then we're going to go straight through in, in July and August. But next week, like John mentioned, great opportunity. I just love the patriotic musical. We have an 8.30 and 9.45 service, identical services. And, uh, you know, just like John always says, uh, friends of yours, oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, there are people that won't come to a regular worship service. They feel uncomfortable about that. But they will come to a musical presentation uh, of patriotic music in the Sunday leading up to the 4th of July. So it's a perfect opportunity. 8.30 and 9.45. Then, at 11.11 and then 5 o'clock at Claremont on, on Sunday evening, uh, I will be teaching one of my historical biblical messages. If you enjoyed what we did last week with Jackie Robinson, you'll really love this on the life and faith of George Washington. I'm really excited to share that with you. So regular worship services with that message at 11.11 and 5 o'clock at Claremont, but then identical uh, patriotic musicals. So you may want to catch both of them or one of them and bring a friend along with you at 8.30, 9.45. Then... After that, in July and August, no more interruptions. We're going to go straight through the story, straight through the New Testament, and uh, get a better grasp of God's Word right on through July and August. And no, no changes just to get right on through the New Testament. And then we'll start something new in September. So that's why we've entitled this morning, Christmas in June. And this is really a bridge message from uh, B.C. Before Christ is the Old Testament. Think of the Old Testament as B.C. and the New Testament as A.D., Uh, Everything in the Old Testament is before Christ, before Jesus. And so we're going to look at the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Then we're going to look at what happened in between the Testaments. And then we're going to launch into what's called the New Testament, A.D., as uh, Jesus uh, comes. Now, this is a, a message that's a transition from the Old, the Old Testament, a transition from the Old to the New. And I always say that a picture's worth a thousand words. So I'm going to give you a seven-second picture of transitioning from the old to the new. Let's watch this together. Now, how many of you are old enough to get that joke? Okay, yeah. This this is the beauty of a multi-generational church. It's for all of you under the age of 30... You could ask somebody over the age of 30. So if some of you could be missionaries to the 1111 service to explain to them uh, what that is all about, I would really um, appreciate that. Now, we're going to start with the old. The end of part one of the story is Malachi chapter 4, uh, written by Malachi around 400 B.C. He writes, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evil evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name. I love this verse too. 
Love this verse. Such a great verse. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Is that a picture of salvation or what? I just love that. But for you who revere my name, the sun, now the King James translation had, has the sun capitalized, capital S, which has given us the idea that this refers to the Messiah, refers to Jesus. And it might very well refer to Jesus. We just don't know that to be the case because it's not mentioned by the New Testament writers. But it could be Jesus, and we've gotten that idea because of the capitalization in the King James translation. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Boy, is that a picture of coming to Jesus? And he heals us with the sun, the rays of the Son of Righteousness. Certainly applies to Jesus, whether Malachi was thinking messianic in this verse uh, or not. But the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And as a result of your freedom, you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Kimberly and I both grew up with cows, and she grew up on a much bigger farm than our little, had a few head of cattle, but she had a big farm. I always tease Kimberly that there were more cows on her farm of her family than there were people in her town, and that is almost uh, literally true. But we both have had the experience of having a calf uh, in the stall that is well fed, and then you release that calf into your pasture, and they, they basically scamper, they, they prance, they, they kick up their heels, they frolic like a well fed calf. I think of this verse um, every morning, believe it or not, this is the verse that often pops into my mind. We have a rescue puppy, a St. Bernard by the name of Millie. There she is. And she was abandoned, and we rescued her. And, and she is now a 105-pound puppy is what she is. She's just, I don't, you know, just barely a year, and she's 105 uh, pounds. And, and she thinks she's a lap dog. She, she still sits on my lap when we watch TV. And so when we watch TV together, she, she's 105 pounds, but in her mind, she's a chihuahua, and she, she sits on my lap when we watch TV there. But Millie is crate trained, and so she stays in a crate at, at night, and then I come in and open it up and get her out, and when she runs into the backyard after being in that crate all night, she frolics like a well-fed calf. Uh, she scampers, she prances. Uh, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. And this is a direct reference to John the Baptist. It's fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents. If they receive his message, this is what will happen. Or if they do not receive it, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And now we have 430 years go by uh, until Jesus comes. So what happens in that 400-year period? What happens in uh, between the Testaments like that? Uh, Dr. Carl Tony is a uh, New Testament professor at Hope International. Uh, he uh, teaches our Coram Deo Sunday school class at 9.45 in the morning. He's also the uh, husband of uh, Pastor Lisa, uh, Pastor Lisa, our transform- uh, spiritual transformation ministry. And um, the other day, 
uh, Carl was sharing with me, I asked him because his class is doing the story. It's one of the life groups that's doing the story uh, like many of the uh, classes are. 27 different groups are doing the story right now. And I asked him, what are you doing uh, within your class? And, and, and he said, um, he was telling me the stuff that he was teaching between the two Testaments. And I thought to myself, that is just such awesome stuff. I want him to share that with everybody. Would you welcome with me, Dr. Carl Tony? Tell us what on. Thanks, Glenn. Well, and thank you for inviting a New Testament scholar to talk to everybody about stuff not found in the Bible, too. Um, so... As we watch the video, you might be thinking, you know, what sort of expectations led to a scene, something like the scene that we saw in the video? Why would be people longing for a king? Why would shepherds be so excited about the birth of this boy? Well, when we look at the times between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get some of those answers. Uh, what I'd like to encourage you to think about is, what would happen if you were to go on a trip? Take a journey someplace. If you're going to go to a foreign country. Now, if you're going to go to someplace in Europe, you might be thinking, hey, I'll be okay. You know, there's going to be someone there that speaks English. There's some English signs there, some English guidebooks. But if you really want to get the inside track of things, what do you got to do? You got to learn some of the local language. If you really want to be an insider, you're going to learn, really learn the language. You're going to take a French class, a German class, that sort of thing. Well, it's the same sort of thing when it comes to the Bible. In many ways, we're like tourists when we read scriptures because we have an English translation for us, which is fantastic. It's a wonderful way to get to know God's word. But if we want to dig a little deeper into God's word, we discover that in the Old Testament, it is written in the language of Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. If you look at the New Testament, it's written in an entirely different language. It's written in Greek. Now, that's a pretty jarring difference to go from one language to another. And you might ask yourself, what happened? Why is the Old Testament in Hebrew, but the New Testament is written in Greek? Well, the reason for that is there's this guy, a little well-known guy, named Alexander the Great, who comes on the world and conquers the entire world, including the Persian Empire, the empire that we saw last week ruling the Jewish people. At the end of the Old Testament, the Persians are in charge. Well, Alexander comes on the scene conquers the Persian Empire, and introduces Greek language and culture to the entire world. And it's because of Alexander the Great that the New Testament is written in Greek. And, and that becomes the common language of the day that allows the gospel writers and the early missionaries to go out and share the gospel with all the world and, and really sets the scene for the New Testament days of Jesus. But the other thing when you're going to another country, you might think, well, you know, I'd like to know a little bit of the political situation. Am I going to a safe country? Do I need to uh, go, can I go out at night? What's, what's going on in that country? Well, in the same thing with the New Testament, Old Testament, what we discover politically in the Old Testament the Persians are in charge at the end. You have Ezra and Nehemiah. They've rebuilt the temple. You've got Zerubbabel, who is a vassal to the Persian Empire. Uh, and in the New Testament, you get the Romans are in charge. You get, in the life of Jesus, when he's an adult, Pontius Pilate is the governor of the south. In the north, you're going to get one of King Herod the Great's sons. Herod Antipas is going to be in charge of Galilee. So you have Roman rulers in charge. How do you go from Persians to Romans with a little bit of Greeks in the middle? 
Well, what we discover is we can look at some writing that comes between the Old Testament and New Testament called the Apocrypha. Uh, it's not found in your Bibles, but if you talk to a Catholic friend, you might find that they've got these books in their Bibles. And we discover some of the history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And understanding that history is really important for understanding scenes like what we saw with the birth of Jesus. Because we discover that the Jewish people, they're dissatisfied. They're under the rule, first of the Persians, and then with the Greeks. And we enter this scene where there is this high priest named Ananias. He's a godly man. He's a pious man. The people love him. They adore him. He's, he's a great guy. He's a godly ruler. Uh, but he's got a brother who's jealous. It's almost a Cain and Abel sort of situation where his brother Jason decides he wants to become the high priest. And so he bribes the Greek ruler, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Jason bribes Antiochus to become the new high priest. He kicks his own brother out of office. He says, I'll give you some gold, some silver, make me high priest. And Antiochus does. So Jason becomes the new high priest. Well, there's another man that says, oh, this bribery stuff, this works, this is great. Well, I know, I'm going to give a bigger bribe. And so this man named Menelaus comes along and gives Antiochus an even bigger bribe and says, look, not only am I going to give you money, but I'm going to teach the people Greek ways. I'm going to teach them not to follow God's law, but to follow the law of the Greeks, the Roman. This is the high priest, the most godly person in the Jewish hierarchy. And this, this would be like the Pope coming along and saying, you know what, we're now all going to uh, become Mormons today. We're all going to be Baptists. Uh, we are all going to uh, join Islam. It's, it's like converting to another religion, the, the leader of the religion doing that. That's what Manilaus does. He's, he says, look, I'm going to teach everyone to be Greeks. And Antiochus thinks this is a good deal. So he puts Manilaus in charge. Antiochus goes off to war. And while he's at war, there's a rumor that Antiochus dies. And so Jason decides this is his chance to get back his high priesthood. So the priesthood that he stole from his brother, he wants to now steal back from this other guy. So Jason becomes high priest king. He steals his office back. Well, when Antiochus hears about this, when he comes back from the war, uh, he's, he's going to do something about it. It's like these high priests are hens who invited the fox into their hen house. And the foxes come back to the hen house. And Antiochus comes back to the temple. He sieges Jerusalem. He kicks Jason out of office. He puts Menelaus back in charge. And he says, you know what? I'm done with this. The Jewish temple is now no longer a temple to your God. It is a temple dedicated to Zeus. Your law is over. We're going to burn the copies of your law. We're going to force you all to act like good Greeks. So although the religious leaders invited him to start this this. It's Antiochus who forces this upon all the people. Well, in a little tiny town in the city of Modin, there's a small priestly family that has had enough. And when Antiochus' people come to their town, they are going to rebel against these officials. They're going to put them to death. They're going to run off to the hills, and they're going to start a guerrilla war against Antiochus and his armies. They're going to stand up for God's law and God's ways. And this family, led by their father, Matthias, and his sons, the most famous being Judas, are going to lead a revolt against the Romans. They have such a successful revolt that Judas gets the nickname Maccabee, which means hammer. And they hammer against the Romans, and they drive the Romans out. They create an independent, free state of Israel. They restore the law of God. They restore the temple. The celebration of the restoration of this temple is known today as the holiday of Hanukkah. It's a celebration of Jewish independence. It's a celebration of the restoration of following God's law. 
And so the Maccabees reestablished the Jewish state. So people have this idea that when foreign powers oppress the Jewish people, that God can raise up an anointed one to lead the people to reestablish the kingdom of God and reestablish them in their ways. So when Jesus is born, he comes on the scene. The Romans are now in charge. They're seen as corrupt. The high priests are seen as corrupt. And so people are expecting, they're longing for God to bring about a new anointed one to deliver God's people. And when they see this birth of Jesus, they think he might just be the next political messiah. But Jesus has not come to be a political messiah, has he? He did not come to establish a new state of Israel. Instead, he's come to establish the kingdom of God in people's hearts. Glenn, if you want to come up. If instead of having Jews versus Gentiles, Jesus has come to include a kingdom of Jew and Gentile. That we all need to submit to the reign of God. That no matter who is in charge, what is going on politically, that ultimately what matters is that God rules our hearts. And Jesus comes not to put the Romans to the sword, but to be put to the sword by the Romans so that God can rule in each and every one of our hearts. That's awesome stuff. I'm telling you. That's great. Thank you, Carl. And now you can sprint back to your class while I do a commercial. Isn't that great? And you know what? We have that opportunity in 27 locations every week. Would you turn with me to the next page of your study outline? It's page four overall in your program. And there you'll see uh, that we have 27 life groups that are going deeper into the story. And just like Carl takes the message that I'm doing here on Sunday morning and then goes deeper into it in a group setting, we have 27 phenomenal uh, teachers, just like Carl Tony, that are leading these different groups that are going deeper into the story week by week. And so I just want to do a little bit of a challenge. How about just for the summer months? Uh, We're just getting into the New Testament. So we've just got about, I don't know, what is it, like nine weeks in the New Testament. So how about just uh, this week and then July and August, investing an hour each week in worship as we go through the New Testament here with the message, an hour each week to one of the life groups, and then, of course, reading the chapters from the story uh, takes you about 15 or 20 minutes uh, per week. So for about two and a half hours every week, you can invest that during the summer as a summer project to get to know God's Word, particularly the New Testament, in a deeper and fresher way uh, this summer. So then as you look at the list, you'll see that Carl's class is there, Coram Deo at 945, but like I said, there are fabulous teachers just like Carl all through these 27 groups. You'll see that the midweek, uh, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, my wife Kimberly, right in C101, right through this door to the right, uh, on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, Kimberly is going deeper into the story. We've got our home groups. We've got our small groups. We've even got an online small group. The facilitator is Brian Coulter, and you'll see the information there where you can join online. If you're not able to come out uh, to one of these groups or go to a home or whatever, you can do this online. And just a little bit of a challenge, what a great uh, project that would be. Can I do another little commercial just because Carl was up here? Carl and Lisa, uh, Lisa, Pastor Lisa and Dr. Carl, they lead a trip to Israel from our church every year around Christmas, or this year it's the first week in January. What could be more awesome than going to Israel with uh, Carl and Lisa? And so I thought I'd just throw that little commercial in here because Carl uh, was, was up here as well. Now, a verse that I just love, when I hear him share about the period of times, what was going on in between the Testaments. I love this verse. It's Galatians chapter four, verse four. 
And it's not in your study outline, but I'll pop it up there. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And when you study politically and, and language-wise how the Greco-Roman Empire really connected the, the world at that time around the Mediterranean by the roads and by a common language and by the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace that came in that area so you could travel easily and safely, you can just see how in so many ways the hunger of the Jewish people, the hunger of the Greco-Roman Empire, they, they were so morally decadent at this time that people were crying out for something different. Does that sound like our day and age right now? The Greco-Roman world were, were so decadent, so immoral, that they were just looking for somebody who would preach something that would change lives. They were hungry for that. And so this verse is so meaningful. But when the set time had fully come, when, when the world was completely ready, then and only then, uh, God uh, sent his son. Now, John, in John chapter 1, refers to this as the Word. He refers to Jesus as the Word. The Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he wrote in John chapter 1 what many people consider some of the most beautiful prose in all of history. Not just in the Bible, but in all of history of what we read here in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the writer of the Gospel of John, not the disciple, but John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Paul writes it this way. Again, it's not in your study outline, but in Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, Paul says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy." For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, now we come to the next page of the study outline. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning, is an echo of Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created. So the Jewish listeners to John would have leaned in at this point because here John's beginning, in the beginning, connects with the beginning of the Jewish scriptures in the beginning from Genesis 1 verse 1. The word who is from God was made flesh. Now the Greek listeners would lean in as John refers to Jesus as the word. Now word is from the Greek logos from which we get our words logic or reason. Heraclitus, um, who was a philosopher in 500 B.C. He was a philosopher who lived in Ephesus. And he's the one that observed, you never step in the same river twice. 
uh, he, he said that if you put your foot in a river, you pull it out. By the time you put it back in again, the whole river has changed. More water has gone by. And so he said that's the way life is. Life is always changing. The world is always changing. But in the midst of that changeability, in the midst of that change, he said the Logos is omnipotent wisdom that steers everything. Even though the world is always changing, there is one North Star. There is one anchor that you can base your life on, and it's the Logos, which is the omnipotent wisdom that steers everything. So the Greek audience would have immediately connected with what John said when he refers to him as the Word, in the same way the Hebrew audience would have immediately connected with that phrase uh, in the beginning. Uh, Plato, um, in 400 B.C., he was the philosopher that wrote right around the time that Malachi was saying the final words of the Old Testament. Plato was saying these things in 400 B.C. He offered the possibility that a word, a logos, may one day usher forth from God. Here he said, one day there's going to be this ultimate logos, this word from God that is going to usher forth from God. Now, the word Jesus was turned away by many. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay. The most important question any person can deal with in all of human history is what are you going to do with the word. Do you receive the word or reject the word? What are we going to do with Jesus? That's the most important question. It's the question. All other questions in life fade in comparison to that ultimate question. But he's also been received by many who become children of God. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Everybody's got that decision in front of them. Do you receive the word Jesus or do we not receive the word um, Jesus? And, and it's, just that, it's just that simple. You know, it's interesting with Turnaround Jake, the movie you know, produced out of our church here. L.A. Weekly has done a movie review on it. And they would usually, you know, rip something that conservative, you know, with a Christian message at the heart of it. It's kind of funny because uh, you know how your eyes project onto it. And they see it mainly as, uh, as a, a movie about corporate greed. And so that's, that's not the main, that's in there, but it's not the main message of it. Of course, we know. But they saw it mainly as a movie about corporate greed. But, but um, when it came to the salvation part of it, where there's that beautiful scene of, of, of sharing Christ in the middle of that, in that movie. Just, just so, so powerful, so well done. And, and the LA Weekly loved the acting. They, they were generally a favorable review. And they kind of praised the a- acting. But you know the thing they ripped on with the movie is they said it's just too simplistic. It's just too simplistic. And I totally get that. To the world, it seems simplistic, doesn't it? Simply receive him, believe in his name, and he'll give you the right to become a child of God. The gospel is scandalous in its simplicity, isn't it? It's so simple that it's offensive to our world. It's offensive to our intellect. It's just so 
simple, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become uh, children of God. Now I'm going to pivot to another commercial, and it's going to seem very, very random. But I want to just talk uh, about, and, and you'll see uh, there in your programs, the whole thing about a, a Chinese Christmas, as we run with the Christmas theme, at the top of page five. And just what John Burroughs was talking about earlier, uh, China in Pomona. Just think what, a, what, a, what an incredible thing it is. For just 12 days, parts of 13 days, but I like to think of it as 12 full days because then it fits in with the 12 days of Christmas. So then I can just kind of make the whole thing work there. But just for 12 full days, for the simple inconvenience of breakfast, dinner, and a bed at night. I mean, they're at school all during the day. On the weekends, there are programs planned that they can go to, activities that you can join in on as a family. So for the simple inconvenience of a couple of students in your home, giving them breakfast, dinner, and a, and, a, and a bed at night, for that simple inconvenience for 12 days, you can have a Chinese student who will be a future leader of China receive him, believe in his name, and get the right to become a child of God. Eternity in heaven instead of in hell influence over the nation that is fast becoming a great world power and the, and the body of Christ is exploding in China. You get to cooperate with God on the greatest thing going on in the world at this time, which is the people that are coming to Christ in China, even at the same moment that that nation becomes a superpower within the world. What could be more strategic than that and yet it's so simple. Bed, breakfast, dinner, and God can use you to have a Chinese student receive him, believe in his name, and thus have the right to become a child of God. Now it's true for us that are here as well. You're not watching online by accident. You're not here this morning by accident. You're here by divine appointment. God has chosen June 22. At the earlier service, I almost said December 22. <laughs> June 22nd, 2014, for, for you to hear this. And I've asked you to do this a hundred times, but would you just do it with me for the 101st time? Would you turn with me to the back of your programs? And there you'll see what it says, how to become a follower of Jesus, three simple steps. It's simple. It's scandalous in its simplicity. A, admit your condition before God. We've all sinned and fall short of his perfect standards, the glory of God. B, believe that Jesus is God's only solution to that condition. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then C, choose to receive him. Choose uh, to receive him and to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And I want to give you that chance. I know it's simple, but it is powerful. It changes lives. It heals broken hearts so that we frolic like a well-fed calf in God's green pastures. And I want to give you the chance to pray silently as I pray out loud.
Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and your purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And all God's family said, amen.